Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. You know it. You love it. It, of course, is Victory Lane. And today is episode 175, 100 Diamonds. Kind of. <laughs> 75 being the diamond anniversary. It's the diamond anniversary year for NASCAR, so... We're going to hear about that in a moment. And we're also going to hear from Sam Mayer's crew chief, Marty Lindley of Junior Motorsports. I had a great conversation with Marty. Go way back a few years to the K&M Pro Series East back in the day. I'm really excited for you guys to hear that conversation, talking about past, present, and even potentially future. Plus Kyle Busch, as if he never left because hint, hint, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. He didn't. He's back, though, in victory lane on a paved oval for the first time in over a year. So we'll dissect and discuss that performance that he had at Auto Club Speedway, which will now be no more, kind of. We'll discuss that as well. But without any further ado, let's head to our Wayback segment because Papa Siegel and potentially even Mama Siegel have some things to share as it relates to NASCAR's Diamond Anniversary. Why don't you two clowns take it away? Thank you, Duve, and welcome one and all to episode 175. Unlike recent weeks, it was not hard to come up with a subject for this week's Wayback Machine. If you're a NASCAR fan and listening to this high-quality podcast, you have to know that NASCAR is celebrating its 75th anniversary this year. Mama Siegel heard Davey and I talking about it this week, but all she heard was the phrase diamond anniversary. That got her all excited. Kachaga! But she and I still have a ways to go before it'll be diamond anniversary time for us. Kachaga. When I think about 75 years of NASCAR, my thoughts go back to the force of nature who had the vision to start it all. I was shocked we hadn't already devoted a segment to him but there's no better time than now to do so. William Henry Getty France created the National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing in 1948. He was born in Washington, D.C. in 1909. I did not know that, did you, Duve? At the infancy of the auto age. As a kid, France raised his family's Model T at a local track in Laurel, Maryland and later opened his own service station. He was lured south in 1935 to Daytona Beach, both by the weather as well as the daredevils who made Lance speed record attempts back then on the sand. When they took their speed machines west to Bonneville, the locals in Daytona cooked up the idea of having a sand and highway road course race. France finished fifth in that first Daytona Beach road race, and eventually became the race's promoter. He was busy planning the 1942 race when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. Big Bill, as he was known, 
got his nickname not only because of his six-foot-five-inch frame, but also for being a visionary who dared to dream big and who had the audacity and forces of persuasion and will to turn his dreams into reality. People thought him a nut to organize drivers, mechanics, and owners and create NASCAR on February 21, 1948. They thought him downright crazy to build a 2.5-mile paved super speedway in Daytona Beach in the early 1950s. It almost bankrupt him. But can you imagine Daytona Beach today without the speedway? And if Daytona wasn't enough, who in their right mind in the 1960s would have picked Talladega, Alabama to build an even bigger bank speedway? You guessed it, Big Bill did. We've spoken in other segments about Big Bill's iron-fisted rule over the sport in its early informative years and his PR and marketing mastery. We also could talk about some more unsavory aspects of his life, including his serving as George Wallace's campaign manager in 1972. I'm sure we'll continue to touch on those things down the road, but if you're a fan of American motorsports, there's no bigger figure to pay homage to during this Diamond Jubilee of NASCAR than the man who had the vision and, frankly, the cojones to make it all happen. That's Big Bill France. That's all for this week. Back to you, Duve. Oh, yes. Thank you, Dad. A uh, couple things. One, I actually did know that Big Bill France was born right here in the District of Columbia. Uh, I still am dumbfounded every time I hear that or see that. And two, I don't know why all these episodes in, but I still just get a chuckle out of my mom's kachigas. Uh, even the excited ones and the, the sad, depressed ones as well. But nonetheless, thank you, Papa Siegel, for uh, paying homage to the past and spotlighting Big Bill France on this diamond anniversary of NASCAR on this episode 175. And you, you too, Mom. Thank you for that. All right, let's start off this episode, as we always do, with a good old-fashioned reggaeton! And throw it straight over to my interview with Marty Lindley. As I'm recording this, uh, I just wrapped up the interview. I'm actually pretty proud of it. Um, I, I really enjoyed the chat. I enjoyed the, the content that we talked about. Marty, as, as you'll probably be able to tell, he's a rather reserved guy he's not shy he's not standoffish he's just marty that's that's just how he is some people are more gregarious and outgoing and in your face marty is the antithesis of that and there's nothing wrong with that at all that's what makes him him that's what has made him so successful all these years as a crew chief but he has not only just been a crew chief he's been a driver as well we get into that part of his career you may recognize the last name lindley his father, Butch, was a very successful racer on the late model sportsman level, uh, which now Xfinity, and obviously on the local late model side of things as well before he was taken from us too soon. So we'll get into that, how his dad has influenced his career in terms of being behind the wheel and the top to pit box, and the here and the now with Sam Mayer and Junior Motorsports on the one car in the NASCAR Xfinity Series. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did conducting it with Marty Lindley. Here is the shot caller for the one car of JRM. It is the man, the myth, the legend himself. One of the smartest guys in the garage, for my money, 
Marty Lindley. Pleasure to welcome on to the show today. He's the crew chief for the number one junior motorsports Chevrolet in the NASCAR Xfinity Series. An old friend of mine going back to the K&M Pro Series days. Marty Lindley is with us. Good morning, good afternoon, wherever the heck you are since you're going back and forth to the West Coast, my friend. How are you? Good. How you doing, Dave? It's been a long time. Uh, like you mentioned, um, yeah, did a lot of races back in the day together. Yes, we did. We're going to get into some of those memories. I miss them dearly, but let's tackle the here and the now right now. So you're kind of in the midst of this West Coast swing. I know that the Cup Series goes back and forth three times. You guys obviously just raced at Auto Club, headed out to Las Vegas this weekend. Are you tired already? Because it's only two races in. We got a long way to go, Marty. Yeah, I w I'm not tired. You know, the, the California weekend with all the rain and the weather, it was a little challenging, but uh, we got through it. It ended well for us. Um, thought Sam drove one of the best races I seen him drive, um, especially at the end. We had a little bit of uh, issues going on, got a little damage to start the race, and uh, probably missed the balance by a couple numbers. But once we got him tuned up, he was really competitive, and, you know, uh, I had a shot to win at the end for sure. Yeah, second-place run for him, obviously tying his career best finish. And this is your guys' first year working together on the NASCAR Xfinity Series level, obviously no stranger to working with each other in NASCAR before, but you obviously, this is your first year at JRM coming over from KBM, from trucks up to Xfinity. Do you feel fully adjusted? Again, only two races in, but you guys seem to have hit the ground running already. Yeah, for sure. I mean, being able to get, I started back in November, early November, so I uh, got a head start on things a little bit, but yeah, still learning every day for sure. Um, you know, the, the rule changes, the new package uh, with the Xfinity Series uh, makes it a little bit challenging for us right now until um, we get it, till we get, we got a pretty good handle on it. And, but until we get to all these different racetracks and find out where, which way our balance is going to head, um, that's some of the things that we, you know, we, we with no practice in California, uh, we missed a balance just a little bit, but we were able to get it back during the race. So, uh, hopefully we get practice this weekend in Vegas and uh, we start uh, strong. So you mentioned the the challenges that you guys are kind of running into, not just as as the one team, but as junior motorsports, as a series, as a whole. When you do get that practice, is there any way to put uh, an estimate on how valuable that is for you, who's kind of learning this car in this series, and also Sam, who still is young? Yeah, anytime you can get laps, uh, make practice, you know, uh, in real time, it's uh, beneficial. You know, the the Charlotte um, Xfinity test was great for everyone, uh, but, you know, the weather conditions were so, so much different than than how we would race there. So it still left us kind of guessing on balance, even going into California. Um, I think we got a little bit uh, better idea after California going into Vegas. So, yeah, it's, it's, uh, we're learning every day, and, and uh, yeah, definitely getting these practices uh you know, speeds up the learning curve for sure. So let's talk about your driver, Sam. God love that man. Man, well, what a handful. I don't know how you deal with him. Um, I was talking to him a couple of days ago in preparation for this conversation, and he told me that you guys started working together, I think for the first time back when he was 15 years old. And I kind of joked with him. I said, well, you look like you're 15 years old now, so nothing's really changed. But I'm sure that there has been a lot of change with him as a driver professionally and also on the personal side of things. 
How have you seen him change in the last half decade or so since you first started working with that baby face 15 year old kid? Oh man. I think the first race that I did with Sam was St. Louis. Um, you know, still some of the characteristics he had now had a lot of speed, but just didn't have a clue what he was doing. Um, you know, he would miss the corners two or three times or, or more during the race. And, and, uh, but it's a learning experience. It was coming uh, quick for him and went on to New Hampshire and, and did a race. And, and so that was back in the NDM days for myself. We did a couple of races with him. Um, I think we might've went to Dover at the end of the year. I can't remember. Uh, but I guess for Sam with me getting going with him, it really, uh, that was just kind of a appetizer or whatever you would say with him, a couple <laughs> three or two or three races with him at MDM, but things got real serious when we got to GMS racing and, uh, we started K and N racing and ARCA racing with him. And the first year was uh, successful. He was able to win the K and N championship the first year, but you know, I still seen, uh, knew, uh, he had a lot of talent, but they were, uh, a lot of room to grow for himself. And, uh, we, had, we, you know, won a championship that year, won some races and seen some real bright spots. Like he was just took him to Bristol for the first time and he broke the track record and won the race. And that was, uh, you know, you don't see that a lot, especially of young kids and uh, such as he was. And But really, when he come back in 2020, you know, I don't know if it was a, him being a year older or what, but, you know, racing all that year, winning all them races, you know, going uh, head-to-head with Ty each and every week. Um, you know, it was fun to fun to race with them guys and, and enjoy it and, and miss some days for sure. But he really, uh, he really switched on at that level by the second year. So I know 15 is when you started working with him. Is that when you first met him or did you have any uh, contact with him or did you meet him in a, in a casual environment outside of the racetrack when you weren't his crew chief before he was 15? A, a little bit. I, you know, I met him back when he was running uh, junior motorsports late model, you oh. know, as Josh Berry's teammate. Uh, they were, they're running the cars tour late models every week. And, and I actually had met him, you know, uh, Lauren Rainier is the guy that introduced me to Sam and his dad. And uh, they had run a late model, um, car for Lee McCall or, uh, back at Greenville Pickens, uh, man, this is early 2016, maybe. And, um, I'd met him there, him and his dad. And, you know, they told, you know, the plan was, uh, to get me and Sam hooked up once he got of age and once he got experience to, to run the K and and ARCA cars. And really that's what happened. So he obviously worked with Taylor Moyer last year on the one car. He's obviously moved over to the eight. Now you're in the saddle on the one calling the shots atop the pit box. I know you said you started in November. What was the timeline like in terms of getting the call, coming over, finally starting in November? And was Sam one of the people that made that call? And how were you kind of recruited over from KBM to Junior Motorsports? Well, so it really didn't happen that way. Um, but it, they started making, you know, People from, uh, I tell you, Josh Berry reached out first. And, uh, you know, he knew that uh, Mike Bumgarner was um, going to be uh, going to general manager, competition director here at General Motorsports. And, and uh, you know, he was going to need a, uh, a crew chief. And, and I'd helped Josh a lot with his late model cars. And, and 
won some races with in the past uh, two or three years with his late model cars. And, and really when we, when I started with Sam Mayer at, at GMS racing, he had spent, Sam had spent a season at, before that with junior motorsports as Josh's teammate on the late models. So it was a natural fit for me to hire Josh. And once we got, once we got the cars built at GMS, we hired Josh as a driver coach. And we went to all these different racetracks in 2019 and we tested and I would let Josh drive the car get the balance of the car close. And then we'd put Sam in it and look at all the data and get him matched up to really what Josh was doing. And so I, I, you know, come really good friends with Josh through that working on his late models and, and all that stuff. So Josh is the one that reached out and, um, you know, just the way things unfolded, I, I wasn't sure that I was on leave KBM. I still had a extension on my contract uh, that they could pick up. And uh, so uh, the opportunity come and, you know, I appreciate Kyle and, and all the people at uh, KBM. They let me out of it um, to come over here because I think it's a, you know, it's a, it's a upper level. It's a, it's an opportunity for myself and, and uh, you know, it got switched up for me and Sam and, you know, I don't have any regrets from that. I like Josh want to see him do good, but, I'd had so much success with uh, uh, Sam in the in the past, and you know Taylor had already worked with Josh in some form. You know, a few races back when Josh got started. So, right. you know, there was it just seemed like the natural fit to to switch it and put me with Sam and Taylor with Josh, and I think it's worked out well for both of us. I've heard that from a lot of people, not just on the one team, but at Junior Motorsports in general. That whether it's Justin getting to where he's at right now, Sam, obviously, um, even, you know, on the engineering side and the crew chief side, it seems like Josh Berry has had his hands in a lot of different places within that organization. No secret what he's done on the late model side. He's obviously now contending for championships and race wins every single weekend. But I think it's probably fair to say, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that Sam Mayer is not the driver he is today. And he's not improving every single week without you, of course, but Josh Berry, for sure, given the fact that he has helped you and Sam kind of get to where you are now in your relationship, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I, you know, I, so kind of Josh watched Sam, you know, he was there at day one with – Josh was there with day one with Sam when he first started, even, you know, at Junior Motorsports in the late model. Sam had had some late model experience, but not a whole lot. So, you know, I could tell right away that uh, Josh had a – you know, he had a really good friendship and he, and he really valued that. And he, he really still to the day, I think he, he will go out of his way to, to help Sam. I think he really likes Sam and, uh, you know, I appreciate that, 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 that helps us. And, uh, you know, we, you know, we try to help each other, but yeah, for sure. Josh is a, a huge part in Sam's success today for sure. So I think it was, it was either two years or three years. I forget the exact amount, but that's how long you and Sam were apart. I'm speaking like you guys are in a relationship, but you were. I mean, you guys were really inseparable. You're an amazing pair. All the success that you had quickly as well in K&N and in ARCA, and now you're reunited. I'm sure it feels so good. Did it feel that long to you, or did it just kind of pick up right where it left off when you guys were in each other's ear on race day? Yeah, I always kind of stayed in touch with him. You know, Sam would come over you know, after Xfinity practice and sit on our box a few times, it, you know, and watch the truck race. And, and I'd always, uh, I kept in touch with him all the time and talked to his dad and Sam and it really wasn't, 
it, you know, it was two years. Uh, I spent two years at KBM once I left GMS and till I come here. And, and uh, so it really, um, other than a different series and a different organization, everything kind of felt similar. You started off the season with a bit of a bang, contending for the win at Daytona. Your teammates were as well. And then one thing leads to another, and boom, your driver's on his lid, sliding down the backstretch. I know you've been a part of a lot in your racing career. I don't know if that was a first to have your car on its lid and tumbling down the back straightaway, but I'm sure that's never a good feeling. Yeah, for, for sure. As long as I've been, you know, I've kind of been in a driver development role, really, through all the ARC and K&N and through all them years and, and even in the trucks now, that was the first time that, as a crew chief or that I've had any car, you know, the crash like that we've had, you know, it looked bad, but it, it, it wasn't as bad as it looked. Um, the car didn't sustain a whole lot of damage. Now the car is no good, but, um, you know, to wreck like that at Daytona, I've seen a lot to be upside down at Daytona. I've seen a lot worse, uh, wrecks than that. So fortunate for that, you know, hate it for Sam. He was in contention to win it. Um, I thought, um, especially after how it got, everything got jumbled up with two to go. It really put him in the, but, you know, it just uh, one of them things racing accident and we'll, you know, went to California and I thought we rebounded well from it. I would say so. Yeah. You go from on your lid one week to runner up the next. Okay. Um, I did a lot of research on you leading up to this chat, Marty, even though I think I feel like I have a good grasp on you and your career. I learned a lot of things and I want to follow up on a few of them. I did not know that you actually got your start with Roush Fenway Racing back in the day, about a decade or so ago. What did you do for them back oh, 10, 12 years ago? So I started, um, so I'll go a little bit deeper. So I had a driving career, and, I, and I, it ended in 2006. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the spring of uh, 2007, I started at Ginn Racing. Bobby Ginn had a race team. Um, gosh, I don't remember the name of it, uh, before he had bought it. So, but it was short lived. It, um, he had financial woes that didn't last very long. So by the mm, fall of, uh, 2007, I, I went to work for, uh, Rouse Fenway racing and they had an ARCA team and, uh, Colin Braun was there, uh, mm -hmm. went to a few races with Colin Braun driving the ARCA car there. And then of course they brought Ricky Stenhouse along. So the 2008 season, I really acted like I was a car chief slash co-crew chief with at Roush Fenway and uh, with Ricky and and spent the whole season at, uh, with him there. Uh, come close to winning the championship. Everybody knows what happened between Scott Speed and Ricky at uh, yep. Toledo and and uh, Justin Algar actually won it. So uh, full circle. Yeah, after all that happened. So after that. Um, they shut the ARCA team down. They moved Ricky to Xfinity side and they moved me to the cup shop. So I was a, um, I was a, on a 16 car. I was a, um, I traveled with a team. I was a mechanic on the uh, 16 car for three years from 2009 to the end of 2011. So that's, that's my Roush story. Was it a big jump going up from ARCA to cup? I mean, on paper, it seems like a lot. Did it feel that way for you? Yeah, it was, I mean, it was, a. You know, we, we tested so lot. We had a, so I can remember 2008, we, we had a seven post car 
it was really a cup car that we had to take to all these racetracks. And ARCA back then was unlimited testing. So we had tested like 22 times. We had this cup car that we had to get data from uh, at every ARCA test, come back and go through all the changes and everything on seven posts, do all the ARCA races. It was a, it was a probably the busiest year in racing I'd ever had. My, my tongue was hung out at the end of the year and I was like, man, I don't know if I want to work this hard. So, you know, that ended and we went to the cup shop and yeah, the cup shop, it was a challenge back then, you know, the rules were, you know, you had qualifying rules, you're changing motors, you're changing gears, you're taking dashes out of cars to qualify. There was just so much into it back then. And, uh, you know, we probably worked six days a week and had one day off a week and, you know, 38 races a year. And to be honest with you, about three years of that, I'd had enough of it. It, it was fun. I appreciate it. I learned a, a great deal, um, you know, just how NASCAR works in the upper series and to even helps me today. I uh, met a lot of great people along the way doing it. Um, but, you know, it was shortly after that I started K&N racing, and uh, that's when things really picked up for myself. So let's go there. I think it was 2013 with H. Scott Motorsports. That's a throwback and a blast from the past. Won a championship there. You're, you're really starting to get your, your sea legs under you. I'm sure at that point in your crew chiefing career, you reached the pinnacle at that point at that level. What did that mean to you at that point to, to hoist the hardware at the end of it? Yeah, I guess what I got out of it, it was, you know, a kid named Dylan Kwasniewski drove the car. Amazing talent. Just a great kid. Uh, still one of my favorite kids to work with till today. Um, yeah, he was, I thought he was awesome. Uh, you know, things after, after that season went okay for him, but I really thought he had a shot to, to make it. And, uh, you know, it's all about timing, uh, the financial part in this, in this industry. And, uh, it just didn't happen. And, uh, you know, having to go through the highs and lows of that, you know, cause you, you build a relationship with these people and you really feel like you, that they put in the work and they had the ability to go on and be successful at the next level. And they just don't get the opportunity or the right situation. And, uh, you know, that dealing with that, um, through all this driver development stuff has been the, you know, the lows of it. And, uh, cause you, uh, build such a relationship. That's why it's so good with Sam. I think he's got a bright future in his sport and, uh, he's, uh, he's well on his way. He's just got a, he's got a, uh, continue to build and, and get better is what he's doing now. Could you ever spell Dylan's last name correct? Because I think I still mess it up, even all these years later. Yeah, I probably couldn't do it today without but <laughs> a lot. A lot of people couldn't say it. You know, it, 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 it took me a little bit to, you know, people had different names for him all oh, the time. Yeah. And, and uh, so it was it was a lot of fun. People probably sure. spell your name with a T instead of a D. So you're used to it. Yeah, for sure, all the time. Um, yeah. I just, you know, blame my mom for that. <laughs> That's right. Yep. You just say, nope, you got it wrong, but it's okay. I see what you're doing. Um, all right. So you mentioned the the driving part of your career. I know we're kind of jumping around a little bit, but you were a pretty good driver back in the day too. Pro Cup champion back in 01. You obviously knew what you were doing. Why did the driving side of things stop a little bit short for you? Was that a, was that a decision that you made? Was it a, a financial decision? Why did you not decide to go further down that path? Well, ultimately it was a financial decision. You know, I, I'd raced a Hooters Pro Cup series for years and won a lot of races in that. And and I got an opportunity uh, with Richard Childress race and RCR 
and I did some cup testing uh, for them in 2003, and I actually run Xfinity race with them, and I was really close uh, to getting uh, a, a partial, a part-time ride with them, um, splitting a season with Kevin Harvick, doing the uh, races that Kevin couldn't do. Wow. Well, they end up getting Clint Borgator to do it, and I was real close to getting that. So, basically, for me, I had a I had a young kid. He was growing up. You know, I wasn't making a ton of money racing on my own, and you know, I was getting old enough, and I just felt like that was my shot. And I did it didn't pan out. So, the best thing I could do is is uh, re rack and and go on the other side of the wall and start working on them because I really I'd learned so much. I crew chief my own self for years and years. Um, I had help. Don't, don't get me wrong. I didn't do it all on my own. I had a bunch of amazing people around me that did help me, help me with, uh, to get where I'm at today. But, you know, I was in control of a lot of the setup stuff back then and, and I understood it. And, uh, so that was my, you know, once I got involved in it, I don't regret any of the driving, but I was like, man, I wish I'd, I started 10 years sooner. Where would I be today? So, but yeah. have no regrets and, and, uh, yeah, it's all good. Even though you don't have any regrets, do you ever think, what if? I mean, what if you got in that, in that car and shared it with Kevin for a handful of races? I can only imagine what you would have done with that opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it could have – you never know. I mean, thing, you, I think you have to be extremely lucky. The timing has to be right. But mm-hmm. it could have lined up. It lined up for Clint Boyer. Um, uh, you know, he had a long NASCAR career and, you know – <laughs> think you know I, I don't really know Clint that well but it seems like he's found his call and he's uh his personality and his demeanor it works good for what he's doing now for sure you and Clint have really similar demeanors I don't know if anybody's ever told you that before uh, well I don't know about that he's a he's a <laughs> he's he's a class clown right yes yes he is yes he is hey I mean who knows opposites attract maybe Maybe one day down the road, you guys will be uh, working together on a one-off or something. Never say never. Um, so you've worked with a lot of drivers in your day. Again, with the developmental stuff, I mean, Rev Racing, I think uh, Daniel Suarez, you were a crew chief for him at one point. You obviously just worked for Kyle Busch as as your owner. You're working for Dale Jr. as your owner right now. Your crew chief, Martin Truex Jr. for one race a couple of years back. That's three Hall of Famers right there, slam dunk, when they decide to hang it up. Jr. obviously in there. You ever reflect back on the amount of drivers and and teams that you've worked for and say, I, I've worked with a lot of really cool people, really accomplished people, and I've done it all my way. You know, you think about it, and it was great memories. And maybe one day, once I get older, and I can tell my well, my grandkids about it. But yeah, you know, I've had great experience. I've been fortunate, very lucky to be in a position that I am, and you know, had a lot of good opportunities and. You know, one races with like you know, big win to win a race with Martin Truex at Bristol Dirt, and the way we won the race, and and uh, win races with Kyle Busch in the Truck Series, that was that was a lot of fun, uh, unique experience for sure, um, but a lot of fun. You know, and you know, winning races with Harrison Burton in the K and N, Zane Smith in the ARCA Series, um, a young kid named Kyle Benjamin that I really thought was mm-hmm. amazing talent. Um, just a lot, a lot of them. The list is long for sure. It, it really tells how old I'm getting. Ah, uh, you know, look at day over 25, Marty. Trust me. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I had uh, Corey Heim on the show last week. I know you've worked with him a little bit as well. And I asked him what it was like to drive for Kyle Busch 
as a boss because Harrison Burton, Todd Gillen, they've all basically said it is a pressure-packed environment. Like, no matter how you squeeze it, Kyle puts pressure on you to perform because you know you're in really good stuff. As a crew chief, did you feel similar pressure when you were setting up the trucks and especially when Kyle was driving it himself? You know if he's in the car and he's not winning, it might not be his fault, especially with his name on the side of the building. Yeah, maybe the first one I felt a lot of pressure, but there's one particular race I felt a lot of pressure with Kyle. So last year we had we started out and uh, went to uh, Las Vegas. That was Kyle's first race and really thought he had it in a bag and he had a contact with Christian Eckes at the end of the race and our teammate won it, knocked the right front fender off of it and he didn't win. And uh, so I think our next race was um, Coda maybe and uh led most of that race and and uh i think coming to the white flag he got knocked or coming to the checkered he got knocked out of the way um to win that race and uh, so what i'm getting at it went to martinsville and run third and uh, so Kyle had always won a race since he started mm-hmm. um and the truck series so we're heading to sonoma for the last one and we hadn't won a race yeah, and I'm like, oh, man, I don't want to have my name stamped by this, right? I don't <laughs> want that record. And, uh, you know, we started out at practice, and the practice didn't go well at all. And uh, But we were able to make changes. We had some mechanical issues going on with the truck, and uh, he showed up the next morning and uh, saved the day. He was really good that day and uh, won the race pretty easy. So that was the first time that I really felt anxiety about being Kyle's crew chief. Talk about a sense of relief. Oh, boy, that victory lane must have felt real good. Yeah, it was, it for sure. Yeah. Um, obviously, your last name is synonymous with racing history. It's very rich in your family. Your dad, Butch, he's been a household name uh, in the sport, won a lot of races back in his day, and he's kind of a, a really figurehead in terms of thinking back on the Xfinity series and, and, the, and different series back in the 70s and 80s. Was racing always going to be it for you? Marty, I mean, was there any, was there ever anything else on the table given the the world that you kind of grew up in with Butch as your dad? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, it was just, you know, from when I was a baby, I was, you know, at all these races, you know, and, and got to watch him race until I was 12 years old until he got injured. But yeah, I don't think so. I, I think it was just, you know, I, I was fascinated by the cars and and always wanted to drive them and work on them and, and, and learn about it. And, and that's what I did. And, uh, you know, uh, it got tougher, you know, he, he got injured when I was 12 and, uh, right shortly after that, I started racing go-karts and he had passed away five years after his injury. So I didn't get a whole lot of help from him other than, you know, the people that knew him, I thought a lot of him, uh, they were willing to help out and, lot of you know a lot of people like that got me started got me in the right direction and uh but you know often think now that's one of the things that i reflect back on if i if he would have been and still been around while i was trying to race and do that things probably looked a lot better a little different right now for sure but i have no complaints i mean i'm very happy what i'm doing and very fortunate to work where i in all the places and and work for dale jr right now at jr motorsports is awesome deal for myself when uh when your dad had has had his accident um and the age that you were it's a very it's a very kind of malleable time for somebody who's growing up between a teenager kind of in those formidable years you've been in racing your whole life you were in racing for 
your whole life up until that point, obviously. Did what happened with your dad change your view on the sport at all? Or was it kind of something that's like, well, back then, it's kind of just part of it. You got to just pick up and move on. No, not really. Uh, you know, <clears throat> at the time, I was really, you know, people didn't think about the safety <clears throat> innovations that's went on since then. Now that you look back and it was such a simple, it would have been such a simple fix and he would have yeah. never got hurt, injured. So, um, you know, I don't blame it. I mean, I just think it was, you know, I don't know if you, I would say it when it's your time, it's your time. I think you can speed it up for sure. But, you know, it's just a mistake. It's people just didn't have the knowledge and, you know, the the part broke on a car that should have never broke and, and uh, it led to the injury. So the way the cars were designed and the angle of the wall and all that stuff. So, you know, it was just a, it was just a, everything lined up for it to happen. From being at the racetrack when you were a kid, your dad kind of seems like one of those pure American badass figures back in the sport before it kind of hit its peak. What do you remember about going around with your dad around the racetrack back when you were a kid? He was, for some reason, he was just really chassis smart. Like he knew his cars. He knew how to work on them. Um, he he understood the tires better than anybody at that time and period. And I think that's why he was so successful. He understood how to race. Um, he was really good. Like my memories of him is like he won almost every time he raced. Uh, now I know that's not true, but he won so many races. So there's not many times that we would go to the racetrack. Oh, we run third, he run fourth. No, he won. Yeah. So so that's that's my memories. I mean, he won a lot of races, and uh, I was fortunate to be at a lot of them. There's a lot of legends about multiple drivers throughout the years and how many races they've actually won, whether it was on the local level, the national level. If you had to ballpark it, just if you had to, what would you put your dad's count at? I mean, people say it's over 500, but I, I don't believe that. You know, the, the push right now is to get him in the NASCAR Hall of Fame, and I think uh, one day that that will happen. Um, but there's a lot of people that's dug back old records looking, you know, it would, I could see where people thought that, but you know, they back in the late mall sportsman days, which is the Xfinity series. Now they would chase tracks kind of like the late mall stocks do. Now they would run 80, 90 races a year where he would win 30 a year. Right. So, you know, doing that for three or four years, but it just doesn't add up to 500. You know, I just, you know, maybe if you went back to all the Morris minor races, he, he raced his car and, and you added everything up. I'm not sure it's there, but yeah. we have people working on it right now. But I think it's going to be well over 200 for sure. Easy. Who needs the king when you got Bush Lindley, huh? Right. Well, yeah, that's a funny story. My dad sold uh, Richard a car one time for Kyle, one of his late mall sportsman cars. And, uh, yeah. yeah, I can remember Richard Cunt come to our house, spent the evening with us at our house and eat with us. So yeah, that was, uh, he was around back in the day, some for sure. Wow. Uh, I know I got to let you run here, but I got a couple more quick ones. Speaking of a seven time champ, you mentioned Richard Petty. Did I read a story correctly that you wound up helping out Dale Earnhardt in 1992 on something? Do I have that right? You do. Uh, I had, um, I've worked for Davey Allison. I kind of grew up with Davey Allison, not grew up with him, but I knew him at a young age. 
uh, was personal friends with him, uh, babysitted his kids. I, kn- I knew that all the Allisons really well, Donnie, Bobby, all their kids, um, mm-hmm. had a relationship with them. So in 91, I'd, I'd actually worked for Davey on the Xfinity team, Bush team back then. And uh, I'd work. The deal was is I would work till Charlie Farmer got out of school. And then Charlie, you know, Charlie works at Gibbs now. And uh, uh, that was the deal. So the next year, yeah, I talked to Earnhardt and and uh, he let me come along. And it was about the time that my driving career was starting. So I went, I went to Daytona. We won Daytona there. I went to Atlanta Test. I went to maybe a couple races there with him. And then I started driving. And uh, so, yeah, it's true. I, I, you know, had a relationship with him, spent some time with him and it was fun. That's really cool. So did you have like an official title or an official role or were you just kind of helping out wherever you could? Yeah, that's whatever they needed me to do. I I mean, I wasn't around long. I wasn't on the payroll, um, but, but um, I did work on the cars a good bit uh, for a couple months and uh, about springtime, about the time that Greenville Pickens started up and, you know, I was building a late model then and that was the plan for me to start racing on my own and, you know, had some people helping me, uh, locally and and so that was uh i you know that's what i did up until i started driving gotcha um you mentioned when you were working on the roush fenway racing cup stuff that it was a grind 38 weekends a year traveling back and forth back then there was no real testing regulations so it kind of burnt you out a little bit i know you're at the xfinity series level now still upwards of 30 races a year do you personally have any aspirations to to get back to the Cup Series level and potentially crew chief an effort up there? I don't know. Um, you know, it would take the right opportunity. Um, it would take a very successful Cup team for me to even think about that. And I don't even know that, you know, that they're looking for engineers. I'm not an engineer. My son's going to be an engineer. He's a, a graduate. Uh, grad, he's senior year at Clemson. Uh to be a mechanical mechanical engineer. So, I mean, maybe I would, but it would just have to be the right situation. Like, I feel like I can win races here at Junior Motorsports, and it's all about winning for me. Uh, if, you know, if I can't, don't feel like I have a shot to win the races, I just don't have no interest in it. So probably, uh, probably not, but you never know. Last thing, you talk about winning. Sam's yet to win on the Xfinity level, but – Everywhere he's been, essentially, he has won, and you've done a lot of that winning alongside him atop the pit box for him. Realistic expectations for this year, I would assume, win at least a race, maybe a couple, make the playoffs, and go from there? Yeah, I think so. Um, definitely, uh, you know, the uh, check one would be, box one would be get him in victory lane, and I really believe that that's coming uh, sooner than later, uh, hopefully. Um seems like we're doing all the right things together and, and, uh, they have such a amazing program here and fast cars at junior motorsports. So I think he's ready to win and hopefully it comes, uh, sooner and yeah, making a, you know, making a final four would be the ultimate goal and, uh, for his sophomore year for sure. When you head out to Vegas today or tomorrow? Uh, in the morning, seven thirty, we fly. I'm, I'm still at the shop today finishing our Phoenix cars up and, and uh, fix and leave and go home here in a few minutes and get ready and go. Well, I will let you run. Good luck this weekend in Vegas and next week at Phoenix, get some sleep, have some, uh, have some good Z's on the flight out there. I appreciate your time. It was 
Great to catch up with you and we'll see you soon, Marty. All right, man. Thanks. See you later. And we are back. Woo. Thank you so much to Marty Lindley for uh, carving out some time. It's a busy time of year for him. I mean, he was just saying right there, he's about to be wheels up to Las Vegas. By the time you're listening to this, he's probably on the ground there in Sin City with the rest of the Junior Motorsports crew. Um, again, one, one of the smartest minds in NASCAR across all three series in my mind. The, the things that he's done with all of these young drivers and now specifically with Sam Mayer, nothing short of remarkable in my opinion. I said it when KBM got him a couple years ago. That is one of the more underrated hires. And I think that him coming back to Sam Mayer and coming back to Junior Motorsports was one as well. So appreciate him. Appreciate his honesty, his time, and appreciate Beth Swanson for helping coordinate that conversation as well. Much appreciated to her, Marty, and everybody involved in making that happen. All right, people. KFB is back. Because apparently some people thought that he left. I didn't, for the record. I mean, I, I thought that the situation he was in at Joe Gibbs Racing in the last couple years, I won't go as far as to say tumultuous, but there was a bit of turmoil with it. It just didn't seem like it was the happy-go-lucky marriage that we had been accustomed to seeing between Coach Gibbs and Kyle for the last decade plus. And as things happen sometimes in, in the world, in the sport, is obviously no different. It just kind of ran its course, and Kyle lands on his feet at Richard Childress Racing. Bygones are bygones. No holding of the watches here with Richard Childress and Kyle Busch. Come out of the gate strong. Third place at the Clash. Could have and should have finished second, but he let his teammate Austin Dillon go by. Was leading at mile marker 500 of the Daytona 500, but being that it was the longest Great American race in history, things did not go his way there, but he was very... Very solid in the 500. Not to mention in the duel he was leading before he got turned into the wall by Daniel Suarez. And then obviously, comes out at Auto Club. The eight car was really fast there last year. This year, no different. Randall Burnett and the boys had a rocket ship underneath Rowdy. And he cruises to his 61st win in his NASCAR Cup Series career. First with RCR, fifth at Auto Club. And this is kind of marking the start of a new era for Kyle Busch. He had won so many races at Hendricks, so many races at Gibbs. And this, as they said over the radio, first of many at Richard Childress Racing. And you heard what I heard after the race, right? All those cheers, and there was some boos for sure, but not as many boos were raining down from the grandstands on Kyle Busch. And I'll put my hand up and take credit for this. Not full credit, obviously, but I'll say that I called it. When he made the move to RCR, I was one of the people that was saying, I don't know why, but I just kind of have this feeling that people are turning on Kyle Busch for the positive. Now, he's been the heel. He's worn the black hat. He's been the villain because, well, he's big, bad Kyle Busch. He's he's not great in the media, and he, he drives for Joe Gibbs Racing, and he drives a Toyota, and he wins all the time, and he, he's not nice on the racetrack, and he's a mean person, and blah, 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 blah. Most of those things are, are not true, by the way. They're just kind of opinion. Um, and now he obviously switches manufacturers from Toyota to Chevy. He switches owners from Joe Gibbs to Richard Childress, who is obviously a, a well-respected Hall of Fame legacy owner. And he goes from a four-car team powerhouse to a two-car team that's not middle of the road, but had been at the B or C tier. And last year kind of bumped themselves up 
to the A tier, people just get warm and fuzzy feelings about RCR. A lot of that probably has to do with Dale Earnhardt, obviously, but a lot of it probably has to do with RC himself. And the fact that Kyle Busch is now there, and he's not just there. He has obviously announced his arrival there. He is winning races. He is contending for race wins every single week, and I know we're only two weeks into the season, so I should probably pump the brakes, and I will, but you can see the writing's on the wall, the proof's in the pudding, butterscotch, chocolate, vanilla, whatever kind of pudding you want, that this is going to be a fruitful partnership. This is going to be a good marriage. And Kyle basically said all those things after the race. So did RC. So did Randall Burnett. It's just kind of a feel-good story, which is wild to think that Kyle Busch winning is making people feel good and feel happy for him, given the the fact that Kyle Busch has been hated and loathed for so many years. But I kind of think it's just the RCR effect, which, hey, Kyle and RCR, they're not going to complain about that. And also, this win by Kyle makes he and his brother Kurt Busch now officially the winningest brothers in NASCAR history, surpassing the Allisons. So that was a very, very cool statistic. When you think back to all the brother duos that have won races at NASCAR's top level, besides the Allisons and the Bushes, you have the Labonis that come to mind, obviously. There's going to be many more that probably come through the pipeline every now and then for the next 10, 20, 30 years as NASCAR embarks on their century-long anniversary here in a quarter century. But that is a very, very impressive stat for Kurt and Kyle Busch. And Kurt was pretty emotional about it after the race. I, I heard a couple injuries that he did elsewhere, and you could tell that this really really meant a lot to him, and it meant a lot to his dad, Tom Bush, as well, and the entire Bush family. So cool storylines coming out of Fontana. One, unfortunately, that is not as cool is the fact that this was the last race on the two-mile oval. And I know that we've seen it coming. We knew that it was coming, but it just kind of felt different, and it hit different this past weekend because you had, all right, we're going to convert it into a short track. And then you had, well, COVID, we're going to not do that anymore. And then, well, COVID made us rethink some things, and there's some state regulations here in California, so we may not do it at all. So now, well, we're definitely going to do it. Well, they're actually going to not come back to this two-mile track. We hope, and I hope, that they're going to make it into a short track, but there's some things that have been reported in the media and certain amounts of land that have been sold that it just makes things a bit iffy for me to believe that Fontana and Auto Club Speedway will remain on the NASCAR schedule for 25 or 26 and beyond. And, you know, who can blame NASCAR? Because if they get a knock at their door and they say, hello, NASCAR Corporation, who is in debt from buying ISC and, and supplying these racetracks during COVID and doing all these different things, we'd like to give you $544 million for this land. What do you say? You think they're going to say, uh, no, we'll actually keep it because the racing's really good, but we're going to need to repave it, and that'll cost probably $10, $20 million. So thanks for the offer of over half a billion dollars, but we'll pass. No, of course they're going to say yes. You cannot, you cannot blame NASCAR for saying yes to that deal. You cannot turn down over half a billion dollars to get rid of some land that you had plans to get rid of already. Essentially, it's just kind of hitting different because the racing at Auto Club historically has been okay. At the start, it wasn't great, but as the asphalt aged and the track aged and the cars changed, 
the racetrack became one of, if not the best on the entire circuit. And that was reflected last year. The next-gen car, the second race of the year, was phenomenal. This year, the cup race was also phenomenal. Xfinity put on a whale of a show. And I, I'm with everybody that it's just sad that it's going away. Um, that's part of it. Again, you're not going to turn down over half a billion bucks if you're a corporation that is in the business of putting on a product, yes, but also making a profit regardless of what you think. Yes, they're there to to provide a service for the fans and to put on great racing and entertain everybody, but they also would like to make some money so they can pay their employees and also run a functional business operation. So again, you you cannot fault them for taking that deal I will place a little bit of blame on the entire situation, not not anybody in particular, but just kind of the mixed messages that we've been getting. And again, it's going to be a short track. Never mind. Okay, now it actually is going to be one. This is the last race on the two-mile track. Just kidding. We're going to come back next year and do it. To now, all right, some of the land has been sold off for over half a billion dollars. Now we're going to actually start tearing up the track and we're going to convert it into a short track, but they haven't said that they're 100% going to do that. They said that, you know, we hope to have some good news soon, and we don't know when we're going to have that good news, but all signs point to it happening. And I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist or, or a skeptic in any way, but I am a bit skeptical that the short track will come to fruition and will happen. And a lot of drivers have said the same thing. So, look, Auto Club Speedway, you've been great to us. I one of my regrets is that I was not able to get out there this year or last year to see a race there on the two-mile configuration before they tore it up. Um, I enjoyed watching it on TV. My, my lasting memory is that 2011 race when Kevin Harvick in the Jimmy John's car pushed Jimmy Johnson's 48 down the backstretch way too deep into turn three. Harvick did the old crossover switcheroo down the front straightaway in the trioval and beat J.J. to the line to win that race. Obviously, what comes to mind is the Denny Hamlin, Joey Logano, Kyle Busch race where Denny broke his back and Kyle won that Xfinity race. That was crazy with Kyle Busch uh, blowing a tire, Daniel Suarez running out of fuel, and Austin Dillon winning the race coming out of turn four. The place has been an absolute mecca for racing in general and memories and awesome finishes. It wasn't always that way, but... That's how I will remember it, and I'm glad to see it go out with the bang with two great races. And also, just real quick to put a cherry on top of that, the racetrack opens up in the late 90s with Joe Nemechek winning the pole for the first cup race there. And who wins the last race on the two-mile configuration and leads the last lap to ever be driven at Auto Club Speedway? Joe Nemechek's son, John Hunter Nemechek. So that is pretty cool. If you ask me, as you heard my chat with Marty Lindley and we are headed out to Sin City and Las Vegas Motor Speedway this weekend. We got a triple header of action. Trucks are in action on Friday, Xfinity Saturday and the Cup Series, obviously the big event on Sunday. Vegas has become a really solid mile and a half racetrack as well. Gone are the days of cookie cutter racetracks. They all look the same. They all drive the same. They're all the same. Uh uh. Vegas is one of the more racy mile and a halfs, in my opinion. The way that the asphalt has aged, it's it's done so gracefully and well. Um, multiple lanes and multiple grooves that all the drivers can kind of pick from and choose. 
I enjoy the racing at Vegas. I hope to be out there later this season for the playoff race. The, I guess, what, it'll be the third to last race of the season? Fourth? Whatever it is. In the final round? Um, I guess fourth, yeah, because you got Vegas, then Homestead, then Martinsville, then Phoenix. Anyways, I digress. I love Vegas. Uh, I think that this weekend's races are going to be great. I'm sure that there's probably going to be some lulls in between, but what's bad about a triple header weekend? Huh? Trucks, Xfinity Cup. You got Kyle Busch pulling triple duty, looking for a weekend sweep. Can he do it with Chevrolet for the first time ever? I think, because he did it with Toyota before, but he hasn't done it with Chevy. So we'll see if he can do that. I'm excited for all the action. Again, Friday, the truck race. Saturday, the Xfinity race. And Sunday, the cup race. All the action is on Sirius XM NASCAR Radio Channel 90. You know where to find us there. Go check us out. Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode of Victory Lane. Appreciate you carving out some time for me and for us. If you want to hear some more from this show, click that subscribe button. Episodes will be dropping about every single week for you. we got another guest in the can next week. I'm excited for you guys to hear that chat. And again, if you want 24-7, 365 NASCAR knowledge, A, my Twitter is the place to go, at Davy Center. But more importantly, and probably more reliably, Sirius XM NASCAR Radio Channel 90 is the place to be. you got live programming almost 24-7, but you have programming 24-7, 365. I host Loose Ends on the weekends, and I work on TMD Monday through Friday, 7 to 11 a.m., Eastern time. So feel free to check us out there if you haven't already, but I have a feeling if you are as much of a diehard NASCAR fan to be listening to this here podcast, you probably are aware or are already a Sirius XM subscriber. So I thank you for subscribing to this show. We thank you for subscribing to Sirius XM. And we also thank you for listening to this very episode. If you like what you heard, leave a rating and a review. Subscribe to the pod on Apple. Google, SoundCloud, any particular podcast platform of your choice. We should be there for you, and I look forward to your feedback. All right, we'll catch you next week, party people. Enjoy the action from Las Vegas Motor Speedway this weekend. Have a great one.